Welcome to episode 108 of TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined by my friend, co-host, and THR's chief TV critic, Dan Feinberg. Dan, how are you, my friend? Well, it's been a short week, and yet it's felt like an endless week. So same as usual, Leslie, same as usual. How about you? I am holding up, man. Oh, God, I hate Mercury being in retrograde. Just me, or is the whole world feel like it's bonkers right now? I, I do not subscribe to that particular religion, but uh, but I acknowledge and admire those who do. <laughs> but can we just talk about baseball for 30 seconds here? Fernando Tatis, 14-year deal, $340 million. Does that make him Ryan Murphy? Uh, look, all I know is it's either going to end up being a franchise crippling deal that they won't be able to get out from or else it's going to be a gigantic bargain that they're going to be gloating about for forever i mean i don't think there's an in-between to it at all either he's going to be the player everyone thinks he is and the face of baseball everyone thinks he is and in that case 340 million is an utter steal yeah or else the fact that he had back problems as a 21 year old rookie is going to become worse and worse and worse, and he's suddenly going to become, I don't know, perpetually injured, and the last few years of this will be an albatross they'll never be able to escape. So one or the other, it'll my be like guess... A, it'll be a Bobby Monia deal. Yeah, something like only vastly, vastly more. So yeah, it'll be one or the other. Anyways, it's interesting, but not if you don't care about baseball. <laughs> yeah, well, with all that said, let's dive into headlines. Leading off, J.J. Abrams is adding another DC show to his HBO Max plate and will executive produce a Constantine TV series for the streamer. On Wednesday, Netflix ordered Wednesday, an Adams Family live-action TV series that will be directed by Tim Burton and will be showrun by the team behind Smallville and Into the Badlands. I see what you did there, Dan. Elsewhere, Brooklyn Nine-Nine showrunner Dan Gore is reteaming with the Pontiac Bandit, I mean Craig Robinson, for a comedy series at Peacock, which has also picked up a half-hour series from Lauren Michaels starring SNL's Chris Redd. In casting news, Normal People author Sally Rooney has set the cast for her Hulu follow-up, Conversations with Friends, tapping newcomer Allison Oliver to join Sasha Lane, Joe Alwyn, and Jemima Kirk in the coming-of-age drama. In other casting news, sex education actress Simone Ashley will star opposite Jonathan Bailey in season two of Bridgerton for Netflix and Shondaland. And wrapping up headlines, Paramount Plus is reuniting the original cast of The Real World for a new series called Real World Homecoming that will be available at launch in March. So there's your tune-in, at least the first piece of it, for when Paramount Plus turns the lights on and CBS All Access dims. With all that out of the way, let's dive into this week's top five. Number one. Leading off this week, Amazon is making some big moves with Donald Glover and Phoebe Waller-Bridge. The streamer has gone straight to series on a reboot of the Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie feature, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, created by and starring the Atlanta and Fleabag Emmy winners. That's not all, though. Tell us more about what this busy week for Mr. Donald Glover entailed, Leslie. Well, we broke news. I broke news this week that Donald Glover is leaving his overall deal at FX and Disney instead for signing a sprawling deal with Amazon. He will get what sources describe as a content channel at Amazon and is already developing another show beyond Mr. and Mrs. Smith. 
this one called Hive and about a Beyonce-like figure. And I'm told one of the interesting members of the writing staff is Malia Obama. So very new TV writer, Malia Obama. So the bigger piece here, obviously that's, that's great news that he's got multiple shows and one that sounds interesting with a very talented or aspiring writer attached as part of the writing staff. But the bigger piece of this that's interesting to me is this is a content channel for Amazon Prime Video where we, that is, would be something that's new. And I should say, Amazon has declined comment on all of this. So there's a lot that we're waiting to see here. So what is a, a content channel at Amazon? No one knows to start, but what I'm told is that it will be you, that you can think of it in, in terms of a curated channel. So if you go into Disney Plus and you see Marvel and you see Pixar and you see National Geographic and, and Lucasfilm, those are the key brands. Those are their channels, right? Think of FX on Hulu as a channel. Same idea here, but this would be a content channel that is not just going to have shows and content made by Donald Glover, but probably curation and content that is picked by Glover to support that. And, you know, the, the other piece of this that's interesting is in, in the streaming era, everything is driven by the, the logarithm, right? You know, oh, if you watch this, you'll like this, or here's, this is going to autoplay because you just finished something similar, you know, and a lot of content creators or showrunners, as we like to call them, they feel unhappy that their shows don't get enough marketing and promotion. So how do you cut through if you have a tiny show that's quiet, that doesn't have a big star and, and you're not a showrunner named Ryan Murphy or Shonda Rhimes, right? That it's hard to cut through. It's hard to, to, to become a stranger things. That was a word of mouth hit that put the Duffer brothers on the map. Now you can put say from the creators of stranger things or the executive producers behind stranger things, and you can instantly cut through. So doing a content channel like this, it could be precedent setting for Amazon. It could also be a new way for creators to bargain as part of these deals. Like, you know, you want, you know, there's, there's, there was stiff competition for Donald Glover. So why did Amazon get him, but Netflix and some of these other streamers and studios didn't? Maybe the content channel put them over the, over the top on this. So it's, it's a very interesting thing to continue to watch. And, and as we wait for Amazon to confirm to see what that actually looks like. I think probably the kids are going to be curious if there's a negative side effect here on season three and four of Atlanta on FX. Uh, should anyone be worried? I'm told that Donald Glover has a carve out. So what that means is he can continue to work on Atlanta as an aside from the deal. Like it doesn't affect. So some of these deals, they're saying, no, it's, it's exclusive. I don't want you touching this. I don't want you involved. I don't want you spending your time doing X, Y, and Z, right? Benioff and Weiss were allegedly allegedly had a carve out to do Star Wars before they left. I'm guessing Netflix knew that they were going to leave when they signed to them for 250 million. So Amazon signed him for for eight figures, which seems like a bargain when you're hearing of all these nine figure deals for for the likes of like Taylor Sheridan, who just signed a new one with with Viacom CBS. But he does have a carve out. So seasons three and four, I'm told, are going to begin shooting in March. And they will film back to back, which FX announced pre-COVID. So the, the goal is to get that show back on the air as soon as possible. It's been off for what, two years, three years now. So yeah, they want to get the, you know, that Atlanta back so that we know it's been renewed for season three. We know it's been renewed for season four. Beyond that, it's still a, a big question mark. And I think that's ultimately going to be up to what Donald Glover wants to do. But at the same time, if you looked at Donald Glover's Insta story when, when he announced Mr. and Mrs. Smith, he did say that that show is coming to Amazon in 2022. So Either he's going to do Atlanta back to back and then Mr. and Mrs. Smith and try and fast track the latter. So lots to, to, to break down from this deal. Yeah. And this is, this is a man who does many things 
in general, but does tend to concentrate on the things he's doing individually. He doesn't tend to do 17 things at once. He tends to be, okay, now it's Childish Gambino season. Now it's Atlanta season. Now it's whatever. So he's not a Greg Berlanti where he would be doing 35 shows at once. That is not what his MO is. And right. So, and Greg Berlanti doesn't write 35 of exactly. his shows. No. Or star in them for that matter. St- <laughs> That, that Although I would be, watch that, I would watch. I would watch a show about Greg Berlanti writing and starring in thirty-five TV shows. <laughs> I, maybe a little bit, uh, yeah, a little bit like episodes only starring Greg Berlanti. Also, doesn't seem necessary, but who knows? Because Kenya Barris is, after all, a TV star. So you I, never. I, know. I would watch the Greg Berlanti <laughs> docu series to see how he how he does it all and how he manages, you know, the the writing staff for for around twenty shows. But anyway, I digress. So yeah, lots lots going on for Donald Glover. Lots going on for Amazon. And we should note though that Mr. and Mrs. Smith has been in, in the works at least since December. So that that's been a deal that that has been some time coming. And I'm all for it. It's I don't know. It's a movie that necessarily needed remaking because whatever on the other hand if you tell me that donald glover and phoebe waller bridge want to work together on something i say okay i will watch that thing they want to work on right they could be reading the phone book and everyone would watch so it really doesn't matter (laughs) yeah number two up next the broadcast networks have begun crafting their slates for next season and one early trend has started to emerge a lot of veteran shows are coming to an end Last week, we noted that NBC is wrapping Brooklyn Nine-Nine with an abbreviated and now delayed eighth season. This week, CBS announced that multicam comedy Mom from prolific producer Chuck Lorre would end after its eighth season, uh, while NCIS New Orleans, the youngest of the three NCIS shows, uh, will be concluding with its seventh season. Those join such ending broadcast shows as Superstore, wrapping next month after six seasons, Fox's Last Man Standing, which will wrap with season nine, and if you choose to count such things, the CW's Supergirl, which will be ending after its sixth season across two networks. So is this a is this a trend, or does it just happen that these are several long-running shows and they'd all kind of lived their lives? I mean, obviously, I think everything is a case by case scenario, but it's kind of interesting to kind of take, you know, the 30,000 foot look at what's going on on broadcast. When you look at the fact that all of these shows, six seasons, seven seasons, et cetera, are coming to an end. So we know that from a business standpoint that that the initial deal that you sign for a broadcast show is for six seasons. So after that point, casts and creators get to renegotiate licensing fees go up. And that's usually, you know, if it's a breakout hit like This Is Us, a lot of those negotiations for cast salaries and stuff can happen a lot sooner. But in a larger sense, you know, a lot of these deals had older contracts, right? So the the key thing that I think is interesting is streaming deals could really be a, 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 a main reason why you're seeing some of these shows end. You know, we reported last year when AMC announced that The Walking Dead would end and get a spinoff featuring the two leads of, of the current flagship show, Norman Reedus and Melissa McBride. And a reason that they did that is AMC had already sold streaming rights and international rights over a decade ago. No one knew that this was going to be a worldwide phenomenon and lead to a bazillion different spinoffs and, and other franchises, right? Like the, the talking dead is a whole, is a big part of that too. Right? So those are deals that are a decade old. Well, it's the same kind of idea with mom. So, 
that's a Warner Brothers show that airs on CBS. And that streaming deal probably was made before HBO Max wasn't even a thought. So when you're looking at, at all these companies, you know, the key thing to remember is, yes, broadcast is a business that's supported by ads and the studios make money on licensing fees. The networks make money via, via the advertising. But in the grand scheme of things, it's also a content pipeline for streaming services. So when you've got a show like NCIS, that's an, a, got an old streaming deal attached to it that probably is either going to be shared or non-exclusive or not even wind up on Paramount+. Plus. So does it make sense to continue that show when you're looking at rising costs, dwindling linear ratings, and the fact that you're making potentially other episodes and seasons for a streaming rival that you're not going to get, you know, like it, it, it's, you know, kind of like, you know, how, how much more do you need, right? You know, yes, Law & Order SVU is a, is a mega hit, but when Dick Wolf shopped that library and had to cash in, not had to cash in. He obviously cashed in huge. But when it came time for Dick Wolf to get paid for streaming rights to all of those shows, which hadn't been been sold in terms of the, the huge library, it was kind of, you know, the, the, the rule of diminishing returns. You know, yes, 10 seasons of a show is great. 15 seasons of a show is great. But like 16 spinoffs with each running five or six seasons and hundreds and hundreds of stuff, like you're not going to get paid the same way as if you have say six seasons of a mega hit like this is us and that's one complete thing you know it, so yeah i mean i'm rambling here but you kind of get the idea so it's you've got lower ratings on broadcast so you're not getting as much because the ad rates are probably slipping because no one's watching broadcast anymore the shows have old deals where you're not going to get the same streaming rights that you would or everyone wants exclusivity today and the cast want more. And then you have probably a lot of other factors, right? Like Scott Bakula is 66 years old. Does he want to keep filming NCIS New Orleans in, in during a pandemic? I don't know. You know, Melissa Benoist, pregnant. They delayed the final season of Supergirl until after she came back from maternity leave. She was probably ready to move on. She just signed a huge overall deal with Warner Brothers, right? And then you've got, other, you know, some of these other franchises. Like news, we broke news this week that there was another NCIS show in, you know, that is nearing a series order at CBS. Guess what? It's from the showrunners behind NCIS New Orleans. CBS is also looking at reviving CSI with the original stars, William Peterson and Georgia Fox. Well, that does a couple of things. It brings back one of the biggest global franchises in television, CSI. NCIS is currently the most watched show in the world. It dethroned CSI. And then it, it reactivates that library and maybe brings interest to, to that stuff, which I don't know if that the CSI library has ever been sold on a, on an exclusive basis. So it also, you probably imagine that the, the deals for a new CSI is going to include exclusivity on Paramount Plus, right? Same idea. So lots going on uh, in the broadcast space, which is super interesting. So, and I haven't said broadcast and super interesting in the same sentence in a while. I think there are a lot of interesting things kind of uh, unifying several of these shows that are ending also. You have both uh, Mom and Superstore that are shows that lost their leading ladies in this season. And so one could go, OK, is that a sign that these shows couldn't survive without America Ferreira or without Anna Ferris? And I, I don't think that's necessarily what's being proven here. I, I feel as if uh, uh, probably both shows have been chugging along fairly well without their leading ladies. I'm also personally amused by the fact that of these shows that are ending, three of them are network 
transplants. So you have Supergirl, which started on CBS and then ran on the CW. You had Last Man Standing, which was ABC and then Fox. And then you have Brooklyn Nine-Nine, which was Fox and then NBC. So kind of the shows that had their lives elongated by moving within the infrastructure coming to an end also these things all seem interesting to me but not necessarily interesting in a big picture sense just here's what's happening in broadcast television i mean several of the several of those shows i will miss somewhat yeah i mean i'm gonna miss brooklyn i a lot but i uh i want to go back to last man standing because that to me is one of the funniest stories you know when we talked about ownership for the you know it's originally produced by 20th century fox and it aired on abc right so you had had Disney paying Fox a licensing fee. And then uh, ABC canceled it, goes off the year for a year. Fox revives it. So great. Fox broadcast network. And now Fox, 20th Century Fox, the studio, it's finally owned uh, by the network that airs it. Except then Fox sold its studio to Disney and it literally reversed course where you had, now you had Fox paying Disney the licensing fee and that's I'm sure the you know the the rising licensing fee associated with that um is probably part of it Tim Allen's probably also ready to move on and may may just feel like a natural end and then he's told all the stories that he can tell and maybe he just also is sick of doing this you know during during a pandemic and you know we keep talking about if actors want to keep doing the, these shows, you know, I reported this week that Mark Harmon is also ready to walk away from NCIS, which would be a huge blow to CBS to lose that show, the flagship show. But he's also negotiating to possibly come back for a 19th season because I heard that CBS was going to cancel the show if Mark Harmon left. And when when Harmon heard that, he didn't want, the, you know, hundreds of people to lose their jobs because he was ready to go. And he's now negotiating to come back if CBS renews it. So we'll we'll watch that. But it's also just, you know, in talking about the pandemic, we keep reminding our listeners here, it costs so much more to make these shows. And the number of episodes that you're going to get for the same money or for the increased money, are you're going to get fewer episodes. So higher costs, less, you're, you're, you're paying more to get less. You're getting less from advertisers. The ratings are nothing and you don't own streaming rights or the stacking rights or it's all super messy and complicated and it doesn't bolster your service and you're spending money and you have to renegotiate these deals. Yeah, chances are you're just going to see another spinoff. And as we're recording this, it looks like there's another FBI spinoff in the works at, at CBS from Dick Wolf. So you take what you get and you pay for as little as possible, I guess. Number three. Up next this week, The Bachelor's historic season has been derailed by host Chris Harrison, who for the first time in decades has taken a leave from the franchise. Joining us to break it all down is THR East Coast managing editor and resident Bachelor expert Jackie Strauss. Jackie, thanks for coming and joining us again on the show. Hi, guys. Thank you so much for having me. So just I, I am not a Bachelor person. Fill us in. What's going on? How did this start? And, and where do things stand? So... It's a bit of a timeline, if you can bear with me. Um, this controversy actually began at the beginning of this season. Um, there were some social media allegations that came out about a contestant on the current season that showed some racially insensitive and offensive behavior. Um, but they were just allegations. The contestant didn't speak on them. And as this contestant became a front runner, the silence became a lot more noticeable. And this contestant, her name is Rachel Kirkconnell. And 
About six weeks later, with no word from her, Chris Harrison went on Extra to speak with another Rachel, Rachel Lindsay, who was the franchise's first Black Bachelorette back in 2017, and she also was a correspondent on Extra. And she asked Chris about the silence from both the contestant, Rachel, and from the franchise. And what happened was a 14-minute interview that I'm sure a lot of listeners maybe have seen or have read about um, that has really sparked this really loud response from Bachelor Nation. Um, You know, during the interview, one of the biggest points of contention was that photos had resurfaced of this contestant attending an Old South plantation-themed party in 2018. And Chris really, you know, I don't have the quote in front of me, but he questioned, you know, it was, he suggested it was okay in 2018 and not okay now in 2021. And Rachel Lindsay, of course, pushed back on that. Um, but, But the conversation, you know, that arise between Chris and Rachel really showed a problematic stance um, from Chris uh, involving discussions about race. And, and you know, it's on a, a few levels. It was first what Chris was saying about why it was okay then. To Rachel's point, it was never okay. Um, it also got backlash over how he treated Rachel because he kind of pushed back and didn't really let her speak on a matter that she is very aware to, and knowledgeable to speak on. And... The third is that it's the face of the franchise talking in this way. And the franchise has had issues of diversity for a very long time. And this is all coming during a historic season that was really meant to set a lot of those problems and diversity woes on the right track. Right, because this is the season with the first Black Bachelor, right? Correct. It's Matt James. He's the first Black Bachelor in nearly 20 years that the show's been on the air. And his cast is also by far the most diverse cast the franchise has ever had. And all of that was really, there were a lot of, I think, um, hopes from the viewers going into that, that we, you know, that we would see a lot more representation from the cast and we'd see issues of race being spoken about on camera, which started last season with The Bachelorette with Tasha Adams, where she brought a lot of great conversations to the air. I'm sure there were a lot more that didn't make it to the air, but it was it was going in the right direction. You know, behind the scenes, they had brought in, they had hired more producers of color. They brought in a diversity team to work with the cast and crew. And Matt, when I interviewed him in the beginning of the season, he really said he leaned on them a lot. Um, the interesting thing about Matt is he's never been on the franchise before. Uh, most of the stars have been plucked from the previous season and they're a little bit familiar with production and how to lead a reality show and how to date 30 people at the same time. He was clueless. (laughs) And, you know, he said that he especially leaned on this team as a resource and he was able to reach out to them during filming, post-show, whenever he needed them. Um, So they certainly made changes behind the scenes. The question is, why are we back in this place? And that's a lot of the question that people, the current and former stars, are asking. Well, I'm sort of very perplexed, actually, by what exactly this stepping away consists of, because obviously most of this has already been filmed up until a certain point. So what is he actually stepping away from and to what purpose? I mean, I I read his statement and it's like I'm educating myself, but I don't understand what he seems to be suggesting that he's trying to accomplish through this. Is he going to the the Nick Cannon school of uh, I've been coached and how not to be a schmuck? 
Yeah, you know, it's it's a really good question because I think there are certainly viewers who, you know, maybe don't aren't on social media and maybe weren't reading the news. I mean, this all went down from Wednesday, um, you know, to when the episode was on on Monday. Um, and if you tuned into the episode, Chris Harrison was there hosting. You know, it was a pre-taped episode. There was no no mention at the top of the show or a disclaimer about what was going on. So. Yeah, I think that that's a little bit confusing. Chris will, as of now, as of when this was recorded, he's he's going to appear in the rest of the pre-taped show, which is every episode until the live finale. And when is that? When is that live finale? It's in it's in around a month, a little bit less. Um, so it's basically have, it's basically he's not doing the reunion special and you know stepping away. It's one episode. He's basically correct. not doing one episode. So it's a it's it's kind of a meaningless gesture. Yeah. I mean, it will be really interesting to see how long this hiatus continues because The Bachelorette goes into production around when The Bachelor ends. So the the clock is kind of ticking in terms of first they have to figure out who's going to host this live finale, which presumably would be a really great stage and platform to address all of this. Um, And then next to figure out is The Bachelorette going right into production? Is Chris hosting it? And if not, who is hosting that show? And what does that show look like in the wake of everything that's happened in the last week and everything that's come to light? I mean, I know I know relatively nothing about The Bachelor franchise other than what you're kindly informing us, but Rachel Lindsay sounds like a great candidate uh, to take on that that role. I mean, has there been any any rumors about what kind of increased role she could have in that franchise? Or does her deal with extra kind of prohibit that? So she is actually contracted because of her Bachelor Nation podcast. So she is still, you know, working with the franchise. And Bachelor Nation is also the term for fans. And they have very loudly suggested her to step in and to host this. But she um, spoke in depth about the interview and her reaction to it and why it was so problematic on her podcast, Higher Learning, which I would actually direct people to listen to because it really you get to hear her side and her experience, which, you know, you don't really get to hear in that interview with Chris. Um, And on that podcast, she said pretty much she's done when her contract is up with the franchise that, you know, she's been really vocal about how the franchise needs to diversify. And I think she is just so frustrated is what she said at this point that she implied that she's all but done when her contract is up. So I think it's a bit of a, harder ask to get her to step in at this moment. But fans would love to see it. I mean, obviously you can't speak for all fans or for Bachelor Nation as a sort of cumulative thing, but how are people responding to, you know, just the the public face of the franchise saying, I'm taking this time off? Like, is anyone suggesting that it's actually a meaningful step that he's taking, or are people just being skeptical of of what it actually means on even a small level. Well, what's really notable is the current cast is really speaking out. And typically you don't see that. I mean, they're under contract by the show. Rachel Lindsay said the show doesn't control social media. And we've certainly seen contestants take to their social media when they've gotten into off-camera controversy. But nothing like this where they released a joint statement from the entire cast calling for change, accountability, action, Um, Some of them have taken to follow that up by posting videos and tweets and going to their podcast to say that, okay, Chris stepped aside, but what comes next? You know, we want to see change. We want to see 
the work that he's doing. We want to hear from the franchise as a whole. We want to see action taken. So it's the right step, I think, is the sentiment, but it needs to be followed by a detailed plan as to how they can fix this problem. Just given given how many years it took before the show had its first Black Bachelor and all of this, it doesn't feel as if the wheels of progress spin quickly in this particular universe. Does that seem like a fair statement? I don't think you'd be wrong to say that. <laughs> I, especially outside looking in, you know. Um, I think that's the point. I think it would be great to hear from the people who are making these decisions, um, even more so about the work that they did in detail and, you know, how they're going to apply it specifically moving forward. Or maybe, you know, everyone takes a, a minute and they reevaluate how they handle the show. Um, I mean, that would be a larger decision by ABC and a lot of people would be involved in something like that. But all those things are being suggested and thrown out by the stars from this franchise. Um, a lot of them have podcasts and they're speaking out. <laughs> I, I do think it's it's important to not just hold ABC accountable. We've seen ABC's track record too, right? You know, the ABC obviously owned by Disney. Dis Disney just fired Gina Carano. Um, they have a, a precedent. They, they canceled Roseanne. You know, they're you know, is groundwork here. And at the same time, it's important, I think, to also note that the show is produced by Warner Brothers. So you have two completely different media brands, media companies working together on the same show. So how much, you know, has Warner Brothers shown an interest in doing something different here? Because, I mean, I don't know, could Chris Harrison have been edited out of these episodes? Could they have found a way to, to recut some of this stuff without him? You know, because to me, it's like this is, you know, like I like I said, it, it, it's a gesture, a, a relatively meaningless gesture. I do think it will be interesting to see if they make any edits in the coming weeks. I mean, there's still, you know, three to four weeks of episodes that they could edit and that they could, um, you know, re release something at the top of the show or something to address what's going on or, or edit Chris's part out. I mean, the um, the Women Tell All reunion show, every season has a reunion show was taped just before all of this went down. So Chris is also hosting that and it won't, you know, touch on any of this. And that, that airs right before the finale. So there's definitely a disconnect between what you're watching on TV and what's happening off camera. And the interesting thing is that when this happens, because it does, recent seasons, it's happened a lot where there's been off camera drama and they discuss it during these reunion shows or these live shows. So, hey, maybe Chris Harrison will appear in the hot seat in the live show and someone else will be leading the conversation. I mean, you know, it, I think it will be very telling how they treat the live show. Yeah, I'm, I'm very interested in how you what your thoughts are on how this franchise has has really tried to evolve. You know, obviously, you know, casting people of color as the, the centerpiece of, as the bachelorette and, or the bachelor and improving the, the diversity on the cast is one thing, but does it feel like the show has actually changed a discourse when it comes to diversity and inclusion, or is it just kind of in, in the casting and that's it? I think a sentiment from a lot of the stars is that it's one step forward, two steps back. I, I think as a viewer, it's baby steps. I think Last season, Tasha Adams was a great lead, and we did actually see discussions of race air, and that's very rare for that show, which usually stays away from race and politics and religion, and we got a sense of that on her show, um, and that led into Matt's season. And, you know, on the premiere episode, Matt spoke about 
being the first Black Bachelor. Um, and it was a conversation that people have had opinions on. Um, they didn't, not everyone loved the conversation, but it was a conversation that was had. So I think it's, it's baby steps. I think it comes from a top-down effort. And the more they can diversify behind the camera, the more we will probably see diversity in front of the camera. Yeah. And what, yeah, I'm very eager to see what happens, especially now, because obviously Warner Brothers has a new uh, head uh, of the studio with Channing Dungey taking over for Peter Roth at the top of the year. So you still have the head of Unscripted, Mike Darnell. It's a, uh, a white guy. And obviously ABC's head of Unscripted, Rob Mills, is also another white guy. And he just got a big new job overseeing Unscripted for across the Disney portfolio. So very interesting things to continue to monitor. But uh, Jackie, knowing you know the franchise as well as you do, just on a final note, do you think Harrison will be replaced? I can't see him. If The Bachelorette stays on track and it goes right into production, I cannot see him returning for that cycle. I, I think the work that is being asked of him takes longer than that. And I think it takes longer behind the scenes but having said that, I don't know the options to step in. I mean, you know, Chris Harrison is the only host of this franchise since 2002. There was one season of one after show on the summer spinoff he didn't host. He's hosted everything else and there's been tons of spinoffs and, you know, specials and reunions and he's hosted it all. So it would look very different. I think that's a risk and a gamble the franchise would have to take. I, I think it would be great if they took it. You know, whether it works or not, I think people are wanting to see change. I think that's the theme of the last year we've all been through. Um, I mean, Tyra Banks replaced uh, Tom Bergeon on Dancing with the Stars as host for ABC and Fremantle. Right. There's precedent to it. And maybe Chris could come back in some other form or or it could be two hosts or it could they could switch. You know, it could be he could host the men's season. And why don't we bring women in to host the women's season? I mean, I think it would be a lot more authentic for some of these bachelorettes to be speaking to a female host as they go through their journey. So that would be nice to see. That seems like a good point. And given how quickly The Bachelor moves to change things, I think in 20 seasons, you should probably (laughs) see that go into effect. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I think a big thing is um, screen time. You know, I think they did cast this really interesting cast of women and we didn't get to see much of it. We saw a lot of catty drama and a lot of villains and you know, I'm learning about all these women by listening to them go on podcasts. I had no idea from watching the show. So I think it's about, you know, change and screen time. Well, for more from Jackie on The Bachelor franchise, you can follow her on Twitter at Jackie D. Strauss. Thank you, Jackie, so much for joining us. Thanks, Jackie. Thanks for having me and talking The Bachelor. <laughs> Up next is our showrunner spotlight segment. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Number four. Our guest this week is a science fiction legend who, after starting his career on three iconic Star Trek shows, went on to oversee sci-fi's beloved Battlestar Galactica update. 
Ron Moore was also central in adapting Diana Gabaldon's beloved Outlander for stars and joins us this week to discuss season two of his Apple space drama for all mankind. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast, Ron. We appreciate it. Absolutely. My pleasure to be here. So from Star Trek to Battlestar to For All Mankind, there's a, a fascination with space and space exploration that goes through many of your shows. I, I'm curious, what was the geekiest space-related thing that young Ron Moore ever owned or did? <laughs> uh, I built models of uh, all the American spacecraft that I get my hands on. But probably the geekiest thing I did was I wrote... Uh, uh, letters to NASA, and I drew pictures of spacecraft suggestions for them. <laughs> and they would send back, like, very nice, thank you for your interest in NASA, and then send me, like, full-color photographs of NASA and the moon and spacecraft and all that. And I did that three or four times when I was in, like, the third grade or something. What, what were the principles of these spacecrafts you were drawing for them? What cool design elements did you have that maybe NASA hadn't caught on with yet? Oh, I was very innovative. Basically, I took a Saturn V and just kept adding more stages to it. And it would be like, this is the one that goes to Jupiter and has like six stages. And this is the one that would go to Pluto and it has like eight or nine stages. And they were just like very, very long Saturn Vs. <laughs> okay, so second season of the show, it jumps forward nearly a decade. And I think there's a there's a way that you guys could have gone where you basically brought in an entire new cast of characters, an entire new slate of astronauts. What excited you about the idea, though, of following the young hotshots from the first season as kind of middle-aged astronauts in the second season? It's kind of astronauts of a certain age this time around. <laughs> right. I think from the beginning, I was attracted to doing it as a generational story, you know, to sort of... Uh, to see the space program really expand and, you know, move and, and become real, it had to take place over decades. And then I thought it was really interesting to sort of follow a group of characters, watch them, watch some of them grow up, watch others of them, you know, grow old and die and do it as a generational story. And I sort of hearken back to, uh, there was a miniseries I loved when I was a kid in the 1980s uh, that was called Centennial, which was based on a book. And it basically followed the story of a town and a mythical town in Colorado from uh, Indian times all the way up until the uh, late 20th century. And I loved that story as a kid. And you, it was the same thing. You saw uh, characters grow old. You saw their children, their grandchildren. I just thought it was a really interesting way to go. So I, I really wanted to replicate that for, for this show. Now, a lot of the fun of the show is the alt history of it and the butterfly effect of history and how it has changed on the basis of, you know, the opening scene, the Russians get to the moon first. I, I'm curious as to how much you guys can explain about the details behind the little historical changes that are part of this butterfly effect. Like, can you, can you give me a full explanation for how the Russians getting to the moon first somehow saved John Lennon, but killed Pope John Paul II? <laughs> no, I don't have a, I don't have a logical chain of events that gets you to those particular uh, things. There were other geopolitical things that we could kind of follow that was like, oh, this is why the Soviets wouldn't invade Afghanistan. And, you know, this is why they would be, 
that the flashpoint in the 80s would be the Panama Canal instead of the Middle East. But for things like Lenin and the Pope and even Anwar Sadat, it was just sort of, well, let's just go with the butterfly effect and, and minute changes in things could affect all kinds of different things. People, some, people would have different things on their mind. They'd have seen different things in the newspapers. And it was at least plausible that out of all those slight variations, you know, John Lennon just has to take a somewhat different step one day or he or Mark David Chapman shows up on a different day because of minute things. And so we didn't really have much beyond that than than the fun of, of sort of doing those kinds of things. How often in the room do you reject a butterfly effect version of history? Because I assume people are just pretty much constantly throwing out, well, OK, what if as a result of this dot, dot, dot? Yeah, that was, I mean, it was a lot. You had to kind of pick and choose what you were going to do. And everything was sort of up for grabs. You know, we've debated all kinds of different things. Uh, the bigger question was really about what we could include in the show. You know, uh, John Lennon, we wanted to play a specific part that was happening in the background, his concert for peace and you know, certain things that he's going to be doing later on in the season. And, and the Pope was just something we thought of, but had no real way to work it in. So we just put it in the montage. So it was really just kind of a question of, there were so many ideas, which ones would we actually play and how big would we play them? What's the Bible like for the show? Uh, the Bible's pretty significant. You know, it started with the timeline was the very first document I put down before we even assembled the writer's room. I just sat down over a long weekend and, and wrote a long alternate history timeline. And then from that, we kind of built out. Then it was, you know, what are the what are the missions of NASA? You know, what is it trying to do? Then who are the characters? What's the multi-year saga of it? How often do we jump ahead? You know, it, it, so it's, it's, I don't even know, 40, 50 pages at this point. That's crazy. You know, with so much going on and so much obviously jumping forward and, and opening up these different, uh, different levels of the butterfly effect, how have you needed to find different experts and consultants as you've gone from you know, the, the state, this pseudo history into the retro futurism? Uh, a lot. I mean, the, the NASA stuff we, you know, and the science and the technology of, we have a lot of uh, consultants on, on the historical stuff. It's mostly the writers on, the, on ourselves sitting in the room by ourselves. We have a full-time researcher, uh, Erica Hatva, who sits in the room with us and does a lot of uh, real-time historical research for us, and then also goes off and does more in-depth kind of stuff. But a lot of that is is more speculation. It's more of us in our our love of history and our sort of love of politics, which I, I find is kind of a common point in almost every writer's room, is they tend to be people who like history and you tend to talk about it a lot. And so we, we a lot of those things were just things we were conversant with or could talk about sort of intelligently from the beginning. How far out does your alt history slash alt future go? Uh, it goes, it catches up to the present and goes somewhat beyond that. Now, the pacing of this show feels like it's a very tricky thing to get right. In the first season, there were parts of it that felt like you were having to make basically a disaster movie every single week. How how challenging was that? And what did you learn from the first season about what was maybe too much from your perspective, just in terms of how much you could actually do? Uh, it is a learning process. And every show has its own sort of rhythm, you know, or its own music, as I like to talk about it in, in those terms a lot. And uh, first seasons are always about figuring out you know, what's the tempo of a season? When do you speed it up? When do you slow it down? What's the melody going to be sort of on top of that? And yeah, looking back at first season, it felt like we started a little slower than probably we, we thought it was starting as slow. We didn't think it was quite as slow as it did kind of play. And then we kind of got to a midpoint and we jumped ahead. 
and then things just kind of started started cooking along. So we sort of took our cues from the second half of the season as we went into the second half, into the second season, and decided, all right, we're just going to keep going uh, at, a, at a good clip here. And we didn't have to sort of make as big... Uh, big of chronological leaps as we did uh, in season one, because we weren't trying to go all the way from uh, landing on the first landing on the moon to an established, you know, moon base that's manned full time and has all kinds of support around it. In the second season, we could just kind of jump to the next uh, period of time and more or less stick in the year, you know, 1983. Is there a difficult balancing act between the things that have to go fast, the things that have to be exciting, and the sort of slow burn arcs, whether it's uh, the grief storyline with Ed and Karen or the Aleda storyline, which feels as if it's sort of the long game of the entire series. But in the first season, it was, okay, we're going to give you this tiny little breadcrumb this episode, and that's all you're getting, and you're just going to have to deal with it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's always a tricky thing. And it, it's about balance. And like I said, it, it, it's about rhythm, because you're watching the show show and it hits you differently you know depending on the pace of the stories and it's also different if you're going to binge them or if you're watching them you know spread out over a week so we know that the first showing is spread out a week at a time so that's kind of in your mind of okay people are going to experience the first time around uh, in sort of weekly intervals and then after that they're going to probably binge them in, in big chunks so you're kind of playing simultaneously to two different viewing experiences and it, it is a tricky balance and it's it's not always apparent if you've got that that uh, that balance right until you get all the way to the end product you know as you talk about pacing and and you know, plotting out the future of the show for all mankind did get an early season three renewal obviously when you guys launched as part of apple's debut slate you were already kind of renewed at that point too. But, you know, this early renewal, I, I'm curious, are you going to film seasons two and three back to back? Is this kind of, you know, to help with filming during COVID? You know, is there something more behind the re that early pickup? Uh, no, it's just confidence from Apple. And, you know, because the show, uh, especially a show that's as visual effects heavy as this show is, you know, if you want to maintain anything approaching an annual sort of, you know, air date, you have to kind of commit well in advance. And I, and I think it was important to Apple that they wanted it to be on somewhat of an annual uh, event. Uh, COVID kind of scrambled all those plans. So we didn't, we're not premiering second season, you know, in November, December, like the original plan was. But nonetheless, when they picked up three, that allowed us to sort of uh, start scripting now and start shooting in the next couple of months so that hopefully we're on the air roughly, you know, more or less, this time uh, next year. So it's just sort of their, it's their confidence that the show uh, is doing well and that the show will continue to be successful that, that makes them go ahead and pull the trigger so that we can do all the planning and we can kind of get things done to sort of maintain an air date schedule. Oh, for sure. You know, I, I do want to ask, you know, the, the reviews at the start of For All Mankind for season one, you know, they weren't exactly great, but I also feel like from my vantage point, and I say this all the time on our on this show, I'm not a critic. So my reaction to seeing how the reviews are, are interpreted, to me, it felt like uh, the shows were not just judging the shows on, on their merit, but it was judging the entire platform as a whole as part of your review. From, from your vantage point, did you think the early response to For All Mankind was fair? Uh, I did think it was a bit of a mixed bag, and I thought that yeah, I, a fair a fair number of reviews were simultaneously reviewing the platform itself and this whole slate of of Apple uh, shows, and I kind of got the sense that 
uh, the reviewers suddenly had this whole like new slate of shows from Apple, and they also wanted to talk about the new service and the history of Apple, and it was sort of, you know, a lot of things to try to digest. That said, you know, I thought there were a fair number of positive reviews. You know, some were not kind, but I've kind of gotten used to that over the years. Uh, I took great solace in the fact that people that, the general audience, audience that actually watched it really responded, really liked it, and people that stuck with it loved it. So, the, you know, I, I thought, felt like it was a good response overall. And, you know, you're always hoping that the critics love you, but, you know, you really want the audience to love you is what you're really looking for. Yeah, well said. Um, you know, and the interesting thing, too, to me about the show is it's kind of your past and, and present all mixed into one in in terms of you've been at Sony TV for 20 years, one of the longest relationships in TV here, having delivered Outlander and obviously for all mankind for the studio and going to Apple reunited you with Zach Van Amberg and Jamie Ehrlich, who used to head Sony and left to run Apple how has that experience been for you working with the, the past of Sony in this new regard and obviously the current regime at Sony, which has changed a lot in the last couple of years? Uh, it was really good. I mean, it was pretty seamless be, because of that. You know, I had worked with Zach and Jamie for a very long time. And um, so when they transition over to Apple and Zach calls me up and says, hey, I want to talk about that NASA show. And suddenly we have a new series. Uh, the working relationship was already established. And then there was a good chunk of, you know, people that that beyond Zach and Jamie that went from Sony over to Apple as well. So there was a, a certain familiarity of of how things would get done. Uh, that said, then all those people were adjusting to a completely different corporate environment. You know, it's a tech company and that's getting into entertainment. And so there was all those growing pains to figure out. And uh, as I start working with uh, Apple, I'm not used to, you know, I'm not used to people saying suddenly things like, well, you know, Cupertino hasn't weighed in on that. And you're like, oh yeah, Cupertino. Cupertino is now in my lexicon, you know? <laughs> and it was interesting. It was fun. There was a sense of uh, new and exciting. They're doing something different. Apple's this amazing, huge company, you know? And uh, I've always been an Apple <laughs> aficionado, so it was kind of fun for me. Uh, and the first year was a lot of, okay, who who's on this call? And wait a minute, who are these people? And then you never hear from those people again. And it was all the sort of growing pains of any any company setting out to do something for the first time. But it was greatly aided by the fact that I knew I knew so many of the people uh, you know who are in the Apple TV Plus division uh, that I could deal with, and so for the most part, it was just like doing an, in any series for any network. What were the notes you got from Cupertino? Uh, they were very interested in the technology. Surprisingly enough, they were, you know how are we portraying technology? What's the state of affairs? You know, in the future, how fast is the technology going to evolve in the show? Uh, and then beyond that, there was just sort of a lot of kudos from the from the higher ups. You know, uh, Tim Cook came to the came to the set at, at one point and was uh, came down and sat at the mission control at the mission control consoles and really enjoyed himself sat there and got lost in the you know the consoles and the keyboards and oh yeah I remember this oh you remember this kind of CRT and it was really interesting to just kind of stand there and, and watch and Tim get really interested in all the tech all the fake tech that we had re repl replicated on the sets but and then when sometimes I would go to Cupertino for various things, there was always this sort of big smile when I would walk in around the offices or meet people and they would go, oh my God, and for all mankind, I love that show. I was a huge fan of the space program. And then you'd walk down the corridors and just in people's cubicles or on their walls, you would just see pictures of astronauts and pictures of spaceships and pictures of, you know, space. And it was clear that, you know, there's a, a great fondness and love uh, 
within the tech world for the space program and for NASA. And so we were doing something that not only interested them on a business sense, but was also sort of appealing to something, you know, that touched them all emotionally and very personally as well. So that was really cool. With that kind of a, of a response from Apple, and you still have the Sony deal, have you thought about how much longer you're going to you're going to stay at Sony, especially considering they're an independent studio at a time when ownership is is so paramount? Well, actually, the truth is, I actually have left Sony. Uh, last uh, June, my Sony uh, contract was up, and I uh, talked to various studios, and I ultimately decided to join 20th, 20th Century, which is now part of Disney. So I'm continuing to work on uh, For All Mankind and uh, and Outlander for that for that uh, for that part. But yeah, I am in a new deal at Disney slash 20th and starting to do projects for them. I decided to go over there. Mostly because um, my childhood, you know, was built around a lot of things that were Disney. I'm a huge fan and aficionado of the Disneyland Park in Anaheim to the point where, you know, I will go there by myself periodically and go ride the rides. And I, the opportunity for me to get to work on a lot of the classic you know, IP that Disney has and things in their library that meant so much to me as a child growing up and that I've shared with my children, ultimately was just something I couldn't pass up. So. I was with great regret that I left Sony because they've been so good to me and I had such strong, amazing relationships with them, but I had decided to move on. So yeah, now I'm at, uh, at 20th. So that opens up a whole new avenue for you. You know, you flirted, this is like almost a decade ago, you flirted with a Star Wars live action show with George Lucas that was for ABC and didn't get off the ground. And now you're at Disney at a time when they've got like a dozen live action Star Wars shows in, in development, how many conversations, how many different ideas have you already pitched about going into <laughs> and doing a Star Wars show for them? Oh, you know, it's always something that's on my mind, but, you know, clearly, clearly they have their Star Wars plate full at the moment. So, you know, I don't, I don't know. It's, I'm not sure this is the moment that you go in and pitch a new Star Wars series over there, but it is, you know, I would love to do something in that franchise. I mean, it was, it was fun to go work on the, you know, the abortive uh, live action show that I did way back when. And I got a tremendous amount of thrill of writing lines, you know, for, for Darth Vader in one episode. And it would be fun to, to, to do that again. It's just not, it's not, uh, it's not the first piece of development I'm doing over there, but hopefully I'll get, I'll be allowed to, to do that at some point. When you think about how hard it was to mount that production and people had been talking about Star Wars TV series for years, even before that, how, how do you look at the fact that we have a landscape in which two months ago they announced, oh, we've got a dozen Star Wars shows coming up? Like, how, do, how does that even process in your brain? <laughs> it's amazing. You know, I mean, I am someone who's old enough to have gone to Star Wars in the summer of 77, you know, and, and seen it originally. And then there, you had to wait years to sort of see the next one. And then there was the big, long fallow period after the end of Jedi before Phantom Menace. And then they started making them again. And then another, you know, uh, fallow period before uh, 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 they came back. Uh, now it's just like, it's just fun. And it's like, oh my God, you know, they can do all this stuff. Um, I remember I used to read the novelizations and the comic books, you know, in between movies. And it, you just saw how, what, what a rich universe it was and how many stories you could tell in so many different ways. So the idea that they're now, you know, spreading out this, the Star Wars saga is not just the main line of the Skywalker story, but, you know, doing things like Mandalorian and all these other shows that they've got in development 
it's just really fun for a Star Wars fan. I mean, I, I to, to me, it's just like, oh my God, this is going to be a really rich and interesting period. And I just, I can't wait to see all the different possibilities that get opened up. Well, along those same lines, you worked on a number of different Star Trek franchises in a world in which the sort of conventional wisdom is you can basically have one going at once. And that was sort of how people approached it. You know, anything more than that, too much. And now suddenly over on CBS All Access slash Paramount Plus, you know, they've got three currently and six more in development. How do you look at all of the Star Trek that is existing in the world? And do you have kind of back pocket ideas that might just be ready to pop out for that one as well? Uh, I do not, actually. I've, I've sort of stepped away from the franchise personally, you know, not, not just professionally, in that I, I just don't watch as much of it as I used to. I think I still, I, I just spent so long in it, and it was such a big part of my childhood, and I'll still go see the movies, and I saw Picard, you know, the TV series, and I've seen Discovery, but it doesn't quite uh, dominate my life the way it once did. So I'm not quite up to speed on everything that they're doing, you know, the, the continuity and the... Um, uh, just the breadth of what they're doing is now so vast, it's almost intimidating even for someone like me to try to catch up on all the different aspects of Star Trek, of like, oh my God, I haven't seen this, and I haven't seen that, and I haven't seen that, and I'd like to at some point, but it's like the hill keeps getting higher and higher, and it just keeps holding me back from from diving in once more. Can you imagine that becoming the case with Star Wars at some point, or or do you, or do you have maybe a different appetite for the two different franchises, just as a viewer? I think they are different because, you know, up until recently, there was a very limited number of Star Wars hours to even consume. I mean, you could theoretically watch all the, the motion pictures back to back to back, you know, in, in, in a, a matter of days, whereas Star Trek had literally hundreds and hundreds of hours. It would take you weeks just to just to watch all the live action pieces. And, you know, so it's it's just a different scale. You know, I think there's a there's more ground to cover for Star Wars because they haven't spent so much time doing so many projects. Whereas with Star Trek, there's so many episodes of so many series that are laying this immense, gigantic web of continuity. I mean, it was one of the things I, I always said, you know, I was very excited when J.J. came along and, uh, you know, rebooted the franchise in the movies and recast and went back to the original original series. However... I thought that not sort of cutting the cord completely to the original series and just literally starting over was a mistake because they they kept all the rest of the continuity. So and they kept, you know, it's an alternate timeline. You've got those complications. So new viewers, it's hard, it's hard for me to imagine what it is to be a new viewer of Star Trek today because there's so much to try to, you know, digest. Whereas with Star Wars... You can just kind of pick up Star Wars and you can go. Like I said, in a matter of days, you can get the whole feature film franchise. And there's only been Mandalorians, the only like you know, full-time series that's gone other than Clone Wars. And I just think it's a easier, it's much easier to get over the bar to sort of understand the Star Wars uh, uh, universe than the Star Trek universe. Well said. Um, at the same time, do you have an idea? I know this is obviously not the first IP that's up, and considering that they have so much other stuff already lined up in the Star Wars franchise for Disney+, Plus. but as someone who loves this property, loves Disney, do you have a Star Wars idea that you would love to do just on the top of your head? I've got a couple, nothing, nothing fully formed, but I've got a couple of notions in the back of my head <laughs> and ideas and sort of arenas that I think would be fun to, to sort of poke around the corners of the, of the Star, Star Wars universe. Yeah. 
Anything that you would like to share? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I had to try. Um, let's talk about that. The first project that you're doing as part of your 20th deal, and that's Swiss Family Robinson for Disney+. Plus. Um, right. As a big Disney fan, which I am too, my wife and I got engaged at Disneyland at Club 33. Um, season passes as a kid, I can go on for a lot about Disneyland. Um, <laughs> but from a, a larger sense, what was the appeal that, that drew you to a project and a property like Swiss Family Robinson? Uh, you know, it's a classic movie. It's uh, one that I enjoyed growing up. It's one I've shared with my children. It, it seems sort of, you know, it, it always kind of it touches us when we watch it. And there was an opportunity to sort of go in and do something new with it. And John Chu, uh, who's also attached as a director, had a, a concept uh, for how to approach it. And as soon as I heard it, I was like, oh, that's really interesting. Let's go in that direction. And it's just, you know, it's been fun collaboration with John. And um, it just felt like an interesting place to start. There's something about that movie that is um, optimistic and about family and about overcoming uh, obstacles and, you know, um, hardships, but uh, having fun at the same time. And it felt very Disney, you know, in many, many ways. So it felt like an appropriate sort of place to, to start. And with all that said, I don't want to skip over Outlander here. That, that in and of itself, as we talk about so many franchises that you've had the luxury of being a part of, Outlander is, it, it, it's a global phenomenon. Um, yeah. <laughs> so you've got season six due this year, what is the nature of your relationship with that show, considering your new deal with Disney? Uh, it's the same as it has been the last couple seasons in that, you know, I no longer a day-to-day -day, uh, showrunner. It's, the showrunner is Matt Roberts, who was with us from the very beginning of the project, and he runs it. And basically, uh, I see the scripts, and I, I look at the cuts, and I kind of give feedback to, to Matt about okay, uh, you know this script. Here's what here's what I think, and you know take it for what it's worth. But here's sort of what I, what I would do with these characters, or here's my concerns. And then Matt goes off and you know takes notes or or doesn't. And then I I really enjoy the editorial process, so I always look at all the cuts and I like you know digging in. Sometimes like okay, this episode's problematic, or this episode is too long, or what can we do? And Matt and I sometimes together, sometimes separately, we'll just sit in editorial. And I I really enjoy the process of of editing the show to this day. So it's that's probably the most direct way that I, I still have my hands on the show and my involvement will continue on on both those avenues going forward that's great and you know season six of outlander is due this year what conversations have you been part of about maybe expanding the show beyond that whether it's a season seven or spinoffs like i'm honestly i'm i'm a little stunned that a global hit that's like outlander that's based on on such beloved novels hasn't by season six already had two or three spinoffs. Yeah. I mean, I am too, <laughs> but I think, uh, I, I think, you know, conversations are underway on both this, uh, season seven and on spinoff. And I think we're going to have good news on both those fronts, you know, before too long. And so I feel very optimistic about it. I agree that, uh, you know, I would have been happy to see it happen uh, sooner than this, but okay. You know, everything happens in its time. And I think both those things are probably going to happen and hopefully we'll be able to say something about it before too long. I'm I'm curious because Outlander is a show that has a specific relationship with its fans and it it's a show that is often very provocative towards its fans and you know that's part of the fun for them they get they get really outraged about certain things they love other things equally it's it's a passionate fan base obviously and when you mentioned okay you know that's problematic the sort of thing that you would notice in the editing room what sort of things do kind of raise your hackles at this point as being the difference between problematic and provocative 
You mean vis-a-vis the, the fan base? The, the, vis-a-vis the stories that you're telling and, and kind of the awareness of how audiences who are deeply invested will respond. Because obviously some things raise their hackles to the sky and other things they just go along with because it's the universe of the show and you guys get away with certain things there. Um, it still kind of comes back to the same place, which is which fundamentally is, do I think this is good? Do I think this is a good way of telling a story? Am I, do I like it? And I still kind of listen to that more than anything else because I to try to second guess or to anticipate the fan reaction is usually a losing game. You know, you never really know and you have to just kind of wait and see. I mean, obviously, if you make major changes in the books, uh, you know you're going to get some kind of pushback. But sometimes, yeah, it's not as big as anticipated. And other times, yeah, it's it's heavy and it's huge. And But usually you're just trying to tell the story for television is what you always come back to. And there's two audiences out there. There's the, the, fan, uh, the, the fans that are fans of the book, and there are the fans of the TV show. And the TV show fans have to be serviced too because there's a lot of of our audience that has never read the books. And we are honor bound to sort of keep those people engaged to continue stories that have changed from the books. For instance, you know, our, our portrayal of Frank uh, diverges from the way he was portrayed in the book. And he learns uh, things about the characters that he never learned of the book. And so we were sort of duty bound to sort of continue that. And that just branches off in the book and changes the story in ways that some, some diehard fans have never quite gotten over. They're still watching the show for the most part, but, you know, they never get over it. But that's okay, you know, because we have to be able to sort of play fair with both audiences. And there are fans that just, you know, cannot countenance any kind of change whatsoever to the books. And others are much more forgiving and and laissez-faire about it. And uh, all you can really do is just go by your own gut and go by what you think is a good story and what you think is compelling and hope that, you know, the audience agrees with you. That that show is also, in its own way, kind of an alt history to some degree. Are there similar muscles creatively between that and For All Mankind that you have to flex between those two shows? A little bit. I mean, Mankind has a lot more uh, leeway, obviously, because we can whatever we can say whatever history is going to be on For All Mankind. But there is a point in both shows where you're trying to you know, tell story within the guardrails of actual historical events. So you're trying to keep an eye on plausibility and could this have really happened? It's a tighter, it's a tighter guardrails on, on Outlander because if you're going to run into George Washington like we did in season three, uh, it has to be in a certain context and he has to be, well, where was he in reality? How old was he in reality? What was he doing at that point in time? Or the same thing with Bonnie Prince Charlie or any of the historical figures. It's a much narrower kind of th- uh, needle that you have to thread. Whereas on, on uh, From Mankind, you can take a lot of leeway with that. You can change, well, then they, they left politics and they started to do this other thing. And you can really start mixing and matching stuff. Are, are there rules, though? Are there rules when you're dealing on For All Mankind with a Deke Slayton, with a Thomas Paine, with, with the people who actually are real parts of this very real history that you obviously love, and you are in some cases having wild deviations, I mean Deke in particular, from the historical record? Do you guys set any rules regarding what you can do with real people that obviously they did not do in the real world? Well, we try to keep them true to who they were, or at least who we think they were. You know, for in Deke, we try to maintain the spirit of who we thought the man really was and who his, what his character was, and try to even, like, weave in things like, 
you know, Deke Slayton really did return to space. You know, he was disqualified at the Mercury program from a heart condition for many years, but he put himself on a mission years later. He was head of the astronaut office, and he just decided he was going to go on, on uh, Apollo Soyuz, and he just put himself on the crew. So we picked up that thread and had him do a similar thing in For All Mankind and had himself put himself on, on the crew. Now, obviously, in our version, he, he dies, and he didn't do that in real life, but it felt like it was within the spirit of who the man was and what, how he wanted to live his life. And so we felt comfortable doing that. And we try to do that with all the historical figures that we deal with, is to try to be true to who they were. And even if they're doing things that they didn't actually do, we, we spend time and effort to think about, well, what would they have done if he or she were actually in this circumstance? It's hard to talk to you about all the things that you're doing without bringing up Battlestar Galactica at some point. And we are in an era where the you're, where Battlestar is being rebooted or revived or revisited, whatever frame or term that you want to use for it, with Sam Ismail, who, of course, did Mr. Robot. And this is a, a new take for the streamer Peacock. And in writing up the announcement, Ismail said that he received your blessing before they announced the pickup. Can you take us back to that conversation? Were you guys on the same page about the need to continue exploring larger social themes with Battlestar or... What was that conversation like? What did it entail? Uh, he called me, which was very generous, like he didn't have to. And, you know, I don't own Battlestar. You know, it was a pre-existing property. And uh, he just called me up and said, hey, you know, I'm thinking about uh, uh, doing a new version of it. Um, he was careful and quick to say it's not a reboot. We're not like going back and just starting over and I'm not going to recast Laura Roslin and all that. It's because those are iconic and, and who, who you did. And I was very relieved to hear that because I was thought, God, it hasn't really been that long and they're going to start all over again. Uh, and he said, you know, I, I have stories that I want to tell that are within that universe that, uh, that you didn't get a chance to tell and could do it in these other places within, within the Battlestar uh, franchise. And I said, that's great, you know, and I, I, I wished him really well. And I, I, I appreciated the gesture that he, he made. They didn't have to, like I said, to, to call me up and just uh, see how I felt about it. The important thing to me was that it wasn't a reboot. I mean, they could have, again, they could have done it because I don't own it and they could have easily rebooted it. And I would be the last person to say that would be wrong since I rebooted Glenn Larson's for me. <laughs> uh, it did feel a little soon to be doing that. But once I found out that that wasn't the plan, I was like, great, you know, Sam's an amazingly talented writer. And, you know, I, I'm very curious to see what he has in mind. And, you know, I look forward to seeing it and being able to watch Battlestar as a fan, which is something I haven't been able to do since 1978. You know, of, of all the things that, you hope that this is, obviously we know it's not a, re a straight reboot, but is there something else that you hope it isn't? No, I, I you know, not at all. I think uh, if it's a musical, I'll be curious to see it. It's just, you know, let's see what it, it's, I, I put no bounds on, on what he could do with it because Sam is incredibly inventive and creative and I'll be, I don't know, I have no idea what he's got in mind, and I, I, but I'm eager to see it. As we record this, we're just days out from the WGA wrapping its three-year battle with the agencies. And as someone who has been on the WGA negotiating committee in the past, how are you feeling about the end of the battle over packaging fees? Uh, I feel good about it. And just to be clear, I was briefly on a negotiating committee a very long time ago. And so I, I take no credit for whatever contract was negotiated in, in that moment. Uh, but I thought this went very well. The Guild uh, set out a very clear idea what they wanted to accomplish, and they did it. And it took a while. I think it took longer than anybody anticipated that it was going to take. But, you know, I mean, mission accomplished. 
all the agencies have signed. It's a done deal. It's exactly what the, the guild wanted it to be. And I, I have tremendous respect for the, the leadership of the guild and the negotiating committee who pulled it off. Um, at, at the same time, will you go back to the agent that you fired? Yes, I already have. Brett Longcar at CAA is my agent. And I'm, has been my agent for almost 20 years. And I was very happy uh, to return and, and work with Brett again. And, you know, I love this question because you've had so many pilots that didn't go that were so beloved just because of the property or the idea or just your name attached to them. But as you look back on your storied career, what's the project that got away? Got away. Oh, the wild. Oh, the wild, wild west. Narain Shankar and I wrote a version of a, a rebooted uh, wild, wild west for CBS. I don't know how long ago, 10 years or 15 years ago at this point. And I loved that original show as a kid. I thought it was a really interesting, you know, mix up of James Bond in the West with sort of occult overtones that would deal with werewolves periodically. And it was really out there and it was a genre piece and very unique. And uh, I was really excited uh, at the thought of, of getting my hands on. I was very disappointed when it didn't go forward. I would still love to find a way to get my hands hands on it again. Um, is that an is that open IP or is that something that I mean, it sounds no. like a Disney Plus project. It's not, unfortunately. It's owned by CBS. Ah. Um, and I do, you know, this may seem a little odd, but I have to, I have to share because my mom listens to, the, to our podcast and Outlander is leaps and bounds her favorite show. She's read all oh, the books. She's watched the, the, the show so many times, owns the DVDs, which, you know, my mom is, is 76 and getting her to use the DVD player was <laughs> a little bit of a challenge at the start. Um, and as a kid, she raised me on science fiction stuff, all the Star Wars movies, all the Star Trek movies, growing up on both versions of, of Battlestar. And my mom has a question, if I can uh, humor you here. Absolutely. Uh, my mom's question is, what is your thought process that you go through when you're selecting the projects that are of interest to you? And I mean, she's aware of, of your, your standing in the industry and that you must get a ton of IP that are, that, that are sent to you, especially now at Disney too. But how, how do you, how do you pick the ones that you want to do? Uh, it's still, it comes down to what I want to see. It, you know, it's the, I want to see that TV show. You know, that's the biggest, the most exciting thing to me is it's, it's I'm thinking about a project or I'm reading something or something's being pitched to me. The first thing that goes through my mind is would I want it, would I tune into this? Would I be excited at, at watching it? And a lot of times I can get to that point. I can get myself excited about just about anything for about an hour. And I have to learn to, you know, I've learned to sort of wait beyond the hour and really let it sink in and go, would I really watch that show? Would I really come back to it every week? Would I get excited when the next episode is coming on the air? And that kind of internal, you know, metronome of, of thought, if that's the right expression, uh, is really what guides me when I pick projects. You know, the Outlander, when I read the book, I could see the series and I was excited by what the series could be. And I totally got it. And when I started talking about uh, what became For All Mankind, I was immediately excited at the idea of seeing the alternate you know, history of the space program. And when I looked at Battlestar, when I looked at the original pilot and I was thinking about doing a new version of it, I was excited by what I could see. Like, oh, wouldn't it be cool to see the Vipers updated? Wouldn't it be cool to watch all this in a docu-style handheld thing? Wouldn't it, you know, I, I could just get excited by my own personal interest in the material. And that's still sort of my guiding principle. When you see the stuff that you guys are able to do on For All Mankind, because it's an ambitious show in terms of 
big special effects, but also kind of little things that I assume audiences don't notice. How often do you think back to things that you couldn't do on earlier sci-fi shows where you're like, we just can't mount that scene? And do you think, God, we could totally do that now? Right now, we've got the technology to do all the things I dreamed of doing. Oh, it's astonishing. And mostly I reflect back to my years at Star Trek. And, you know, we we were doing what we considered pretty cutting-edge visual effects work in those days. But I saw... Uh, you know, the, the business transition from literal models and blue screens to all CGI and, and virtual set work. And there were things, you know, we wanted to do so desperately at Star Trek that we just couldn't do week after week. We, we had one big dedicated soundstage, Stage 16, which was affectionately known as Planet Hell, that all, virtually <laughs> all the alien, yeah, that's what we really called it, virtually all the alien planets were on Planet Hell. And you just got sick of moving the same rocks around and you could only hide the, you know, the parameters of the soundstage so many different ways. And we would always get frustrated that we couldn't portray real alien landscapes. We couldn't get any real scope into the show. We couldn't really do big, you know, out uh, exterior scenes. And we, uh, we couldn't do spaceship battles very well. If you look back at Star Trek, any of the Star Treks before the current iterations, Space battles were very limited. You could really only do a few shots here and there. And even in on the ground combat, when Riker and company are exchanging phaser shots with the Klingons, or not with the Klingons, but with the Romulans or somebody, we're literally in production meetings counting how many of those phaser shots we can have in the, in the <laughs> fight sequence because they were that expensive for our budget. So now it's just like a whole different world. I mean, we really, it's really astonishing the change that's happened in that part of the industry. <laughs> And uh, we like to just end these conversations with the same question. What are you watching and enjoying? Uh, I just caught up on Lodge 49, which is a show I had never even heard of. And I was looking for something to watch with my wife. And we <laughs> kind of Googled cult TV shows. <laughs> and up this popped. And I was like, it must be a cult because I've never even heard of this show. And I loved it. Like, totally, just really out there. You know, somebody just, I think I read a review that des described it as a mashup of uh, Big Lebowski and Inherent Vice. And I was like, yeah, that's kind of what it is. And, and, but with a really good spirit to it and a lot of fun and weird things going on, a great cast, great characters. And uh, I really, I, I have no idea. I hope they get picked up for a third season because I really enjoyed the first two. I don't know. I don't know how to break this to you, but it's it's no. done, unfortunately. No, really. <laughs> Sorry. Oh man, how far behind am I? Is that like old news? It's, uh, it's about a we, year. Two. Really? Wow, I'm really behind. That's sad. I was reading. I think I I based that on something I was reading. I think when I first got to see it, the the line in the review said, "And I hope they get picked up for a, a third season." I just sort of took that to bed. Like, oh, okay, that's the. Uh, yeah, some of wow. some of us have been grieving that one for for a year uh, now. That's amazing. That's really too bad. <laughs> well, Ron, thank you so much for joining us. This has been absolutely wonderful, and uh, thank you also on behalf of my mom. Oh, it's my pleasure, and my best to your mom. Thank you both. <laughs> New episodes of For All Mankind premiere Fridays on Apple TV Plus. Number five. As usual, we wrap things up with the critics' corner. Among this week's major new launches are. For All Mankind Season 2 on Apple, which you just heard our interview with Ron Moore. It's a Sin arrives on HBO Max. HBO's Alan V. Farrow. The CW's Superman and Lois. Ginny and Georgia on Netflix. And the Punky Brewster sequel makes its debut on Peacock. 
Dan, what you got? That's a lot of options. And here's the thing. Some of those options are actually really pretty good. So yay, if you've been waiting for good things on the small screen. Uh, It's a sin already premiered on HBO Max. It premiered on Thursday. So people can check that one out. And it's 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 a really good show. I, I would say probably it is the best new scripted show of of the year in all likelihood. I, I feel as if that's probably reasonably safe. It's five episodes and it's close ended, and so it's really a five hour miniseries. Uh, and it it is such an interesting tight rope walk of a show because it is about. A group of friends in London in the 80s into the early 90s basically set against the rise of the AIDS epidemic and the misinformation and the homophobia and just all of the confusion and sometimes stupidity and genuine tragedy that was associated with it. So there, I think there's an instant guess if you are a potential viewer that this is going to be a very very depressing and very very emotional series and and i think it is certainly emotional and it is heartbreaking throughout on the other hand there's a lot of energy to it there's a lot of joy there's a lot of nostalgia for a world that changed dramatically a world that turned upside down and and a world that was ended by by AIDS, a world that will never be, you know, brought back, uh, you know, all of the generations that were lost as a result of that horrible disease. And so at times you will laugh at the show. It will almost certainly make you cry. There are a lot of great performances. There are recognizable actors in it. Uh, Neil Patrick Harris has a role. Stephen Fry has a role. Uh, Keely Hawes, who I swear does like five British dramas every single year, has a role. But then a lot of the cast is young actors who people either don't know as actors. So Ollie Alexander, who's probably the lead, is better known as a, a singer slash musician in the UK. Uh, Omari Douglas, Callum Scott Howells. It's a very, very good young cast. Uh, uh, Lydia West. So lots of great actors, lots of great performances. It will make you cry. It might make you laugh a little. The soundtrack is tremendous. Uh, and there's just a lot of, of substance to it. And there's a lot to discuss about it. And that would feel like sort of a tease. And speaking of It's a Sin, we'll be joined next week by creator Russell T. Davies for a showrunner spotlight segment. And uh, while the listeners may know that Leslie is not, in fact, a critic, I believe you watched all five of these episodes in very short order this week, and I believe you were a fan. Big fan. I mean, I should note, you know, Russell T. Davies also created the original Queerest Folk, um, which I, I love the original, but I also really loved the Showtime uh, American version of it. Russell T. Davis was originally criticized that that his original queer as folk didn't touch on the, the AIDS epidemic. And, you know, this show feels like what could have been then, you know, it's, it, it's just one of my fa- favorite pieces of art that I've seen in a long time. I haven't had a good cry like I did after that finale in a long time that wasn't brought on by, by politics or, or anxiety. Um, 
And it was just honestly, it, it, it's a, a range of emotions. You know, the, this cast, it's all all gay characters playing, uh, all gay actors playing gay characters. And it's just, it's refreshing to see. And it it feels, you know, it feels representative of, of what that, that era must have been like. And I I loved it. I loved it so much. And the music is just perfect too. Um, but yeah, it, it's one of, it's easily my favorite show of the year so far. So, okay. That's going from the person who will be next week's showrunner spotlight uh, to for all mankind with this week's showrunner, Ron Moore, who you just listened to. Uh, this is an interesting show because I watched three or four episodes back when it premiered last year on Apple TV plus, and I wasn't dismissive of it, but basically I thought, okay, this, this is decent stuff. Not for me. I went back and, and rewatched the first season and a, the show does get better as it goes along. It just becomes much more focused, but I think it also works to the show's benefit that we've seen a lot of space shows in the past, let's say year that have been, Oh, let's just say not as good. Let's just say, look at Disney Plus's the right stuff. Uh, Look at Space Force on Netflix. Look at Moonbase 8 on Showtime. Some of these shows have things about them that are worthwhile. But on the whole, I would say none of them are successful. I would say For All Mankind does a really, really good job with what it's trying to do. And it is very much a cumulative show. It is about these characters going through a large amount of difficulty as part of the alt-history space race. And... I, I just find like the show kind of gets under your skin and gets better as it goes along. The second season is much more focused than the first. You you just heard Ron Moore talk about how it's all set basically in one period, whereas the first season covered six or seven years and at times felt a little diffuse. This is much more focused. It builds to a final two episodes that are very high tension and very high drama Um and throughout, there are a lot of thoughtful, good storylines and interesting approaches to history that I, I just really appreciate. And the cast is is so very good, whether it's people like uh, Joel Kinnaman, who I've liked before in many things, uh, people like uh, Michael Dorman, who I've liked in several things, or actors like Chantel Van Sanden, who is an actress who has been in, I would say, about a half dozen CW shows. And I've never thought she was bad exactly i just never walked away going okay that's a that's a dramatic actress of heft after watching this season i think she really might be and it's sort of a surprise i there's i'm getting a strong early julia roberts vibe from her in this season of the show that i only mean as a compliment and a plus she's really good the entire ensemble though is is really good and if you were like me and you checked out on the first season, I would I would recommend going back, maybe starting again and just keeping going with it because it, I think it adds up to something really solid, even if that was not necessarily where it was immediately. Uh, let's see, what else do we have upcoming? Well, there's another show about Superman coming on the CW and... <laughs> And I don't necessarily mean that as a as a criticism because people liked Taylor Hawkland's interpretation of the character when he appeared on Supergirl and when he appeared on various uh, crossover events. And so this is a 
I would say this is like a 30-something version of, of Superman because it's very much about Lois and Clark as parents dealing with career adversity, dealing with tragedies in their lives, dealing with teenage children who have their own issues. And if nothing else, I appreciate that they had an angle on it. I've seen a couple episodes. I, I think they're okay I think it definitely fits in with the CW superhero brand, so there's that. Uh, not great, but at least there was an angle to it. It's not just a straightforward, oh, look, we're going to do a superhero Superman origin story, blah, blah, blah. You know all the beats. The little boy appears on Earth in a spaceship, you know, Martha and Jonathan Kent, blah, blah, blah. It's not that. It's not Smallville. It's effectively a sequel to Smallville. Um, yeah, so not bad. And then there's Alan versus Pharaoh, which is a four-part HBO documentary series from Kirby Dick and Amy Ziering, who have done a series of powerful and important documentaries in recent years on sexual assault and how different institutions handle it. You know, they've covered sexual assault in the military, sexual assault in the university system, sexual assault in the music industry. This is more specifically about Dylan Farrow and her accusations against Woody Allen of, of sexual molestation that have been in the news for decades, but only really and truly began to find traction collectively a couple years ago as part of the Me Too movement. And so it's it's a lot of explorations of why there was 20 years where this was not something that was being discussed or why there was 20 years where Woody Allen continued to get Lifetime Achievement Awards for major award ceremonies and, and continued to work with Hollywood's A-list and all of that, why, for whatever reason, things didn't take hold. Uh, it, you know, when you're reviewing it, you have to review it as a documentary. You You can't just review it as, do I believe Dylan Farrow? And so... You know, my reviews on The Hollywood Reporter, and it's it's a tough review, and it's a tough review also because th there are some large storytelling flaws in this series, and there are choices that I don't fully understand or agree with, and it's not just that it's a one-sided story, and lots of people will have that criticism. This is This is something that the filmmakers do. As a rule, what they do is they give victims slash survivors – a platform. And, and there's a lot of value to that, obviously. There's, there's a huge amount of value to it. But it also means that the stories do end up being a little preaching to the choir-y, and this is going to feel that way as well. There are also just choices that don't make sense to me. There are There's a full episode, almost, stretched over four, that is trying to kind of analyze Woody Allen through his movies. And to me the connections are not well enough made and it makes the argument more diffuse than it needs to be there. You know, that what you, what you have here is a young woman remembering horrible things that happened to her that she says happened to her when she was seven. That's what the movie is. It's not a couple filmmakers analyzing Manhattan and trying to find out whether that movie, you know, becomes I don't know, a prism or whatever through which to view Woody Allen's actual 
actions as a person. So it's tough and, you know, it's tough subject matter and it's a, a tough approach to it. And so some people are going to find this enraging and in a morally righteous way, other people are going to be frustrated by the choices. And that's that's just what it is. So all you can do is is know what it is going forward and, and know your expectations. And yeah. And then there's a Punky Brewster sequel appearing next week that I haven't watched yet. But it's definitely out there. And, uh, and it definitely doesn't include Glomer. And therefore, my interest is definitely limited. Well, for more of Dan's weekly recommendations, be sure to subscribe to THR's Now See This newsletter. Dan, will Glomer be making an appearance in the newsletter anytime soon? No. Apparently, Glomer is persona non grata in the entertainment industry, and we've all, as a society, let Glomer down. Well, that feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you for listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. Be sure to subscribe on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a little reviewy thing. We're always happy to see you guys on Twitter. Come say hi. Bring your questions, comments, concerns. We nearly did a mailbag segment this week. We might do a mailbag segment the week after. Who knows? But we always appreciate your questions. You can email them to us at tvstop5 at thr.com. That's tvstop5, the number five, at thr.com. Until next week, Leslie. Until next week, Dan. <laughs>